So, uh, good morning. Uh, my name is indeed Gary Earnholt, and my wife Melanie and I have been back here at uh, Platte Park for about six months now, and just wanted to say how grateful we are uh, to be back here, back part of this community. Um, we love you guys, and we're grateful for the chance to serve here, and uh, I'm honored to have the chance to share even this morning. So, this picture here is a forest. Uh, you're welcome. Um, that's totally obvious, but... Um, so I want to think about forests for just a split second. Um, so what's your favorite kind of forest? I grew up in the Midwest, and there were, I grew up running around in these old-growth uh, deciduous tree forests with maples and oaks and um, lots of wet leaves on the ground and rotting tree limbs and just think of the smells and um, kind of sights of my growing up in those forests. Or maybe your, for, your favorite forest is like the redwood forests of Northern California and the Pacific Northwest where the trees grow massive and tall. And, uh, or maybe your favorite forests are the forests we have here, the pine and aspen forests that cover our mountainsides. Or maybe it's a tropical rainforest. Whatever it is, forests are amazing, uh, amazing places. And they play these amazing roles in our uh, climate, in our, on our planet. They clean the air, and they uh, prevent erosion and protect topsoil, and they, uh, regulate, they help regulate our climates, um, and on and on and on. The benefits of what a forest does are amazing. Um, but while all this is good and well, um, I learned something new about forests. Um, I think it was a couple years ago, I listened to a podcast, a radio, a radio show podcast called Radio Lab. Any Radio Lab fans here? Anybody? Right? Yeah. Uh, it, Oh, three of us. Uh, it's awesome. Uh, it's a really great show, and I highly recommend it if you're looking for a fresh listen for a podcast. But they had an episode called From Tree to Shining Tree, and it's, uh, it's kind of really helped explain, and, and it's unearthing, helping us learn more about what's going on with forests. We've always assumed that um, species work to protect other species, that they kind of perpetuate their own kind, that pines help pines and birches help birches and so on. But research is showing that somehow forests actually behave more like a, a cohesive network than a bunch of individuals. Trees of different species will share resources. Sick or diseased trees will spread uh, their resources out to help new growth. Um, these trees also communicate back and forth with one another. They com communicate warning signals. And while all this is good and well, and we knew this to some degree, it's how it's happening that is really pretty astounding. Yes, all these things kind of happen through a tree's root system, but what's going on there is where it gets really super interesting. They've discovered that there's a tiny little organism, a tiny little fungi, about the thickness of an eyelash um, that kind of roots and weaves its way around all the roots of a tree. And it's actually this fungi. This fungi has a communication with the tree to uh, share resources with these roots. And it mixes and mingles and intertwines with the root system. And it's through the fungi that the tree gets most of its nutrients, its minerals and its elements. A tree, if it didn't have these minerals and elements, would only be so tall because it wouldn't be able to have the rigidity and the structure to grow so tall. And so it's these minerals that are important. And it's this fungi that actually supplies these minerals through up to the trees. This fungi is an amazing organism. It actually will mine rocks. So as it weaves through the bottom of the soil, it bumps up against a little rock. It squirts out a little acid, and it digs these tunnels through the rocks till it finds a little deposit of minerals, and it'll liquefy that and shoot it up into the tree. Um, and the little holes that they dig, when you look at them, they look just like our mining holes, the way we mine through a hillside. 
The fungi also will actually kind of hunt and kill insects. They'll come up in these little insects and they'll squirt their little acid out and burrow little holes in it. And somehow, in this bizarre way, the animal's still alive, but like the fungi liquefies its guts and shoots it up to the tree. Um, The fungi also will break down fish carcasses. So it'll come up like in a forest where bears will, you know, in the feeding season when salmon are running up a river, and we've all seen the footage of a bear grabbing a, a, a uh, grabbing a big salmon, it'll take a couple bites out of it and throw it up on the side of the, uh, the river until it grabs another one and does that. Well, these fish carcasses will get under a couple layers of leaves and this fungi will find them. And the fungi will squirt out that acid, liquefy the nutrients. And they found that up to 75 to 80% of nitrogen in some trees in the Pacific Northwest, Alaska and whatnot, that nitrogen comes from fish. There's fish DNA in trees, people. Um, this is amazing. So it's also the system whereby trees communicate with one another. Uh, trees can dump its sugar down to the, to the fungi like a bank to store it and get it back later. Um, it's rather incredible. When scientists have mapped these relationships between the trees through the fungi, it looks like a, 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 corp, a computer network or even a central nervous system. It almost seems that forests have this intelligence about them and how they communicate and how they work together. And my point in saying all this is, A, it's awesome. Uh, it's cool. Like, there's fish DNA in trees. Like, that's, I just, that's awesome. But on the, on the, the other side, the B side of it, there's this reality in life that the deeper we look, we realize there's always something more going on. And as science progresses, looking outward, um, we discover there's more going on than we ever knew. And as we go even down into the, into the microbial, we, we, the, at the atomic level, there's more going on than we ever new. Trees and forests play a huge role in the functioning of our planet, but they can't do that work apart from the work of the fungi. The big work that trees do, the scrubbing the air, the, the, the curating our climates, all that kind of stuff, is dependent on the little work of the fungi. The fungi breaking down those little bits of, of minerals and elements and nutrients to shoot up to the trees. The big work is dependent on the little work. And that's a general truth of life. The deeper we look, we realize there's always something more going on. And this is particularly true in the story of the book of Ruth. At first glance, Ruth appears to just be a story of a hard luck family uh, where a a mother and a daughter-in-law lost uh, husbands and a father. And we could take it at that level and and get some moral teachings out of it and move on. Uh, But as Charlie and Susie have pointed out, there are bigger themes at work here. There are bigger themes implied in this work, themes of how we engage with the foreigner, with the stranger, with the alien, themes of how we handle immigrants. What if there's something more going on here in Ruth? Why would that be? Ruth is the only Old Testament book not named for an Israelite. Ruth is the only foreign name that appears in the Old Testament of a book. What is the something more that's going on with this book? And we'll zoom the camera lens out to kind of that macro level to get some more of that in a moment. But I want to look first at kind of the text itself and what's transpiring. First um, is just this idea of time. So early in the book, uh, actually it's the end of chapter 1, it notes that Naomi and Ruth arrive in Bethlehem in late spring at the beginning of the barley harvest. So that's late March, um, early April um, that they are there. Um, They're uh, getting their feet back under them in, this, in, in the town of Bethlehem. So that's early March. And then it says in Ruth 2, at the end of Ruth chapter 2, um, 
that Ruth continued to work alongside these harvesters until the end of the barley harvest, and then she continued with them through the wheat harvest in early summer. In an agricultural culture, harvests were everything. It was an important time. And the original hearers would have thought, well, that definitely means from late spring to kind of early summer. So a, a period of time has transpired here. And I think that's an important thing to remember, that there's time for the community to get to know who Ruth is, to see her faithfulness and working day in and day out, to see her ongoing uh, just hard work ethic that she has. And I think just as a larger principle, we need, as people uh, of the faith, we need to understand that Scripture talks about time in a way that is very uh, not the way we're used to time. We're a microwave culture. Um, and massive chunks of time will appear in the Scriptures. At, there's a period at the end of a sentence, then there's a space, and then the first letter of another sentence. Very often in that tiny little spot, a massive amount of time will transpire. Like in the story of Jacob and, and getting his wife Rachel. He served seven years to get his wife Rachel. Then uh, her dad tricked him and he had to serve seven more years. So 14 years transpire in the story. It's a massive amount of time. In the story of, uh, you know, the, the Israelites leaving Egypt, they wander the desert for 40 years. In the book of Acts, the apostle Paul, you know, ends one sentence, you know, Paul was put in prison, period, space. Two years later, da-da-da-da-da. Two years. So our, our, our sense of time is important. And understanding time in this story, the story of Ruth, is important to understand that there's space for the, the people to get to know who she is and what she's like, that she's a hard worker. And also, before we move on, we need to acknowledge that the text is intentionally, intentionally leaving a lot of questions unanswered. And there's lots of questions about who these characters are. Like, who is Ruth really? What's she like? Is she, um, is she really that hardworking? Is she really that faithful? What's her angle? Why is she here? What's she doing? In a chieftain and clan type culture like this, understanding where a person fit inside of the clan structure was really important. And we don't really know where she belongs. Does she belong to her dead husband still? Does she belong to Naomi, to herself? What's she getting at with her work here in this? And then who is Boaz? Is he really a good guy? Why does he care about this? Is he going to step up and do anything? Will he come through for them? The story is leaving lots of questions unanswered on purpose because it's just good storytelling. This would have flown out, uh, flowed out of, a, of an oral culture where there were stories were told around fires and the traditions were re rehearsed and, 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 and rediscussed. So this is good storytelling. It's leaving questions for the end of the book. It's all working towards, it's building towards a climax. It's building towards a massive reveal that Susie will talk about next week. The story's driving somewhere. It's heading somewhere. So with those questions kind of in our minds, with the understanding of time, let's uh, go to the text and look through chapter 3. This is from uh, Ruth chapter 3, verse 1 and on. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you where you would be well provided for. Now Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor. But don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. Let's stop right there for a second. 
So Naomi recognizes that with the harvest drawing to a close, they're going to need some real security. Something's going to need to kind of solidify for them. Ruth has been gleaning uh, in the fields at harvest. And this is an important practice. Landowners in Scripture were, were commanded by God to not harvest everything, to not, to not take everything from a field, but to leave a little bit around the edges so that those who were poor or destitute or widows or foreigners or aliens in the land could take part in the harvest. It was a very dignifying form of social security and welfare. It was a command by God to take care of those who are in need in, in your midst. And not just take care of them, but let them participate. Let them be a part of the community. Let them be an active and important, play an important role in what was going on in the life of the community. But gleaning is not enough. They're going to need something more. Um, so the harvests are nearly over, and Naomi re- recognizes that they're in need. And so she suggests that Ruth put something of a move on Boaz. And it's hard to overstate how risky this is for, uh, for Ruth. Now, the threshing floor was kind of a wild party. The harvest party was a a pretty wild time, and it was primarily made up of men, and there was drinking and libations and merrymaking, and Ruth is a foreigner. She's an outsider. She's of a bit lower status. Women were vulnerable in this culture. There's no guarantee how Boaz is going to receive this advance from her. But Ruth is all sorts of brave and is game for it and goes for it. So there's a great lesson here that sometimes in advocating for ourselves, um, even in the context of faith, we need to make a bold move. We need to step out um, and do something brave that's scary. It's that simple. Sometimes we have to take bold action. So the story continues. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you, he asked. I am your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. Let's stop right there again. So, one key thing to remember about this scene is that they did not have all the ambient light that we have. There weren't street lights. There weren't house lights. When it got dark, it got dark. And on the last time you were out in the woods and it got dark, you can't see anything. And so Boaz, like, it's kind of a weird question. Who are you? Well, it's not that weird of a question when you understand it was dark. So he wakes up in the middle of the night. Um, he might not be quite a thousand percent uh, from the, the partying on the threshing floor. And he's like, who, who are you? What's going on? Uh, so Boaz, is, uh, it's not just that he's inebriated that he doesn't understand. It would have been, frankly, just dark. So also, if you're thinking that this seems a little bit um, naughty, like there's some hanky-panky going on here. You are not alone in thinking that. Um, plenty of scholars want to make this scene a little more R-rated than PG-rated, if you know what I mean. Uh, but I'd say that the story, the narrative, is keeping us guessing. It's leaving us guessing uh, and keeping things ambiguous on purpose. Again, to keep us questioning until next week. Are these people doing the right thing, even in the dark, when no one can tell what's happening? The questions are there. The ambiguity is there on purpose. The ambiguity is there for, the, for reason. Now, I'd say that the story of the narrative is keeping us guessing, uh, but uh, in the original Hebrew, some scholars say that this wordplay will really, um, these euphemisms really mean something else that refer to very adult situations. So the question is, are these people going to do the right thing in the dark when no one knows what's going on? But this 
this interaction could also be seen as a callback to a previous conversation, the very first conversation between Ruth and Boaz. So in, uh, earlier in, uh, so as Ruth says here in chapter 3, I am your servant Ruth, spread the corner of your garment over me since you are guardian redeemer of our family. Back earlier in chapter 2, when Boaz first uh, hears about her, he says, I've been told all about what you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother in your homeland and came to live with the people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So Boaz had recognized Ruth's faithfulness and love towards Naomi, and Boaz kind of offers a blessing, a prayer over her that she would be, that she would be supported and covered for. And with Ruth's, with Ruth's bold action here, it's almost as if she's saying, are you willing to be the answer to your prayer? Will you spread your garment over me? Will your garment be the wing of the Lord God over me? I've come into this land. You've offered this prayer, this prayer that uh, you've come, you know, under whose wings you've come to take refuge. Will you, Boaz, be the answer to this prayer? And again, that's a heck of a lesson. That's a humbling thing to realize. That sometimes when we pray, it's going to come around to us that we need not to just pray, but be the answer to the prayer that we're willing to pray. Are we willing to be the answers to the prayer that we offer? Let that roll around in your heart and your mind for a moment. So now it's time for Boaz to reply. Will he reciprocate? Will he lash out in anger? This is a foreigner. This is, a, this is an underling. She was just a worker in the field, not even really a worker in the field, talking to the landowner. This is a woman making a proposal to a man. It's all sorts of backwards and wrong and flipped upside down. How will Boaz respond? This is his response. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night and the morning. If he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good, let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. So she laid his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized. And he said, no one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. He also said, bring me the shawl you are wearing, then hold it out. When she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. Then he went back to town. So Boaz, as it turns out, really is a good guy. And he's going to do something very, very righteous here. He notes that everyone can see that she's a woman of noble character. Bethlehem would have been a relatively small village, and if you grew up in a small town, you know that word gets around fast, that rumors fly, and that rumors about this childless widow foreigner uh, would have abounded. Everyone knows everyone else's business. Um, and, 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 as, and also, a successful farmer like Boaz, why is he involved? But Boaz sees Ruth as more than a foreigner. He sees her as more than a childless w- widow. He sees her for who she truly is. That's a hardworking, a faithful and thoughtful and caring woman who loves those around her deeply. And he wants in on that action. And I love this little statement here. Although it's true that I'm a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another who is more closely related than I. He's been doing the math. Boaz has been thinking about this. So she comes to him and he's like, 
I'm, I'm with you, Ruth. I got, I got you. I see what we're talking about here. Boaz has already been thinking about how he might get with Ruth. He knows that there's another who's a, who might be a closer redeemer, and he's going to clear this up and get, this, get to the bottom of this. And so just a side note, if you've missed some of the previous weeks, when God gave the Israelites the law, he made allowance for kind of the protection of land and the protection of property for families and a way for the family name to be carried forward. So this was a patriarchal clan structure, and land was owned and passed down through a male heir. So if a husband died before producing that male heir, there was a provision that another, a brother or a close kinsman, could come along and, and provide a male heir for that family as like a surrogate husband or a guardian redeemer is the name. Now there's a very messed up and weird and messy story in this clan. This is the clan of Judah that we're talking about. There's a very tawdry version of this that had happened earlier in this family's uh, line. And we don't have time to go into that right now. But um, suffice it to say that Ruth's husband had died and Boaz is going to save the day for them if this other fella isn't willing to do it. So furthermore, good guy Boaz wants to protect Ruth's reputation. He sends her home before anyone can recognize her. Again, because of the darkness, he protects her reputation because it's a small town and a woman at the threshing floor would have produced all kinds of rumors. And he gives her basically her body weight in grain. Six measures of grain was like, it was a lot of grain. So he dumps it in the shawl and he throws the bundle on her, but then he, uh, he just takes off and lets her carry that home. Um, but, uh, but he does provide for her. He's taking care of his lady now. He's, he's provided for her. And he's on a mission. He's headed to town to get this matter settled. He's a man taking care of his stuff. So now, Ruth gets home and reports back to Naomi. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, How did it go, my daughter? Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, He gave me these six measures of barley, saying, Don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, Wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. And again, another little literary device that's used here. Ruth tells Naomi everything, but we don't get anything. Naomi gets all the details, but again, we're left guessing. Like, what? What was that conversation? What actually happened? Naomi gets everything, but we don't get anything. The characters in the story know what happened at the threshing floor, but it's left ambiguous again because the uh, story is driving forward. Did hanky panky happen? Are they good people? Questions abound. So this story is building to this big reveal next week that Susie will cover. I'm putting a lot of pressure on her to really deliver next week on this reveal. But there are clues in the original language that this is a righteous relationship without the hanky-panky. And even through the translation, we can see that the matter is not yet settled. It's how they say it. If Ruth and Boaz had consummated the relationship in some way, the threshing floor, that would have very much settled the matter. Again, this ambiguity is good storytelling. So you'll have to come back next week to hear from Susie on this. Uh, but for us here and now, these questions abound, and we can zoom the camera lens back out, and we can get back to asking, why are these bigger themes in place here? What are these broader themes? What if we dig deeper to see if there's something more going on here? What if this story is a key link in the grand redemptive story of God? Over, it, over their history, Israel had really struggled to understand that they were meant to be a light and a blessing to the rest of the world. God had promised Abraham when he told him he would have offspring, that he would bless all nations through that offspring. 
but they struggled to be faithful to that call. And this story is beginning to fill those gaps in and show that there's real-life examples of people doing the right thing. We're reminded that strangers and aliens and foreigners matter because God's redemptive story is for everyone. Furthermore, God had promised earlier in the book of Genesis that through the tribe of Judah that this story is talking about, this clan of Judah, he would raise up a king for them, one who would lead and rule justly and faithfully. A scholar that I read this week said this, it's not that the previous scriptures have been silent on this theme, this theme of of a king and a redeemer, but here we see the seeds of earlier promises, promises germinate and sprout in the personal history of specific individuals who become the ancestors of Israel's first and greatest king and ultimately the redeemer of the world. From Genesis 49.10, we learned that the king would come through the tribe of Judah, but that's all we knew. In the seventh generation here in Ruth, this story becomes personal, involving real people in real time in a real place. The grand movement of God's redeeming work begins to involve ordinary, everyday people. In other words, the deeper we look, the more we realize there's something going on here. This is why there are so many names and family designations in the book of Ruth. Just skim through Ruth and note how many times family names are mentioned. Husband, father, son, daughter. Family names mean something here. Charlie, in the overview of chapter 1, pointed out that the book of Judges, which this story takes place in that time, book of Judges, the leadership was so kind of corrupt and immoral that by the end of the book of Judges, no names are even used. It's just this generic morass of bad behavior. But here in Ruth, names are important. Family is important. Because God is beginning to do his real redeeming work in the lives of personal individuals. It's all about names and family. There's a theological phrase that you might have heard us talk about various times, us meaning those who've spoken from this platform, those who've preached from this platform. This idea of said. It's a Hebrew word that means loving kindness, loyal love, loving kindness, long-suffering faithfulness. This patient love of God is the major theme in the Old Testament. God's ongoing love and faithfulness from generation to generation to generation. God's ongoing redeeming, redemptive work through generation to generation. His faithfulness. That word is a Hebrew word called hesed. And hesed is all over the book of Ruth. Ruth's loving, it's not just God to us, but people exhibit hesed as well. Ruth's loving kindness and faithfulness to Naomi. Boaz's faithful kindness to Ruth. To Ruth. Boaz calls out her kindness and faithfulness to him, even in not chasing after men that we see in this chapter. And here's what's beautiful about this passage. On this grand scale, because of God's has said, he's working out the redemption of all things. But he does that through the ordinary acts of everyday people. God's has said is accomplished through our has said. God uses our said, our faithfulness, our faithfulness to him, our loving acts to others to accomplish his said, his faithfulness to generations. God just doesn't do it abstractly. He does it through individuals, through people, just like us, just like Ruth, just like Boaz, Naomi. And what that means is that what we do matters. How we do it matters. Our work matters. 
What you do every day for a career matters. Our parenting matters. Our love lives matter. Our friendships matter. Our service matters. Our faithful execution of the things we're called to do matter because it's through these thousand and one little obediences that God accomplishes his big, broad, and sweeping redemptive works of all th- as he redeems all things. How Boaz and Ruth exemplify faithfulness here matters. How you and I exemplify faithfulness matters because God accomplishes his hesed through our hesed. So for a point of application in this, there's a phrase, a concept, an idea, and I'm not sure where I heard it first, that's really been messing with me. And it's this. How we do anything is ultimately how we do everything. How someone handles themselves and their work and a task is ultimately revealing of how they do everything. What you do and how you do it matters. What I do and how I do it matters. Because God is accomplishing his redemption of all things through us. So back to this forest metaphor from the beginning. Trees have these massive responsibilities on our planet to curate climate and scrub our air and all these things. But they cannot accomplish those responsibilities without the ongoing day-in and day-out work of that little fungi weaving its way through the soil, providing the minerals and nutrients so that the trees can do what they do. The grand work is dependent on the little work. The big things are dependent on the little things. And on an even more cosmic scale, the same is true for us. God accomplishes his redemptive purposes in the world through our thousand and one tidy little obediences. The deeper we look, we realize there's always something more going on. Everything we do matters. So let's do it faithfully. The band can come forward as I pray to close. God, your loving kindness to all generations is astounding. Your faithfulness to tell this redemptive story from eternity past to creating the world we live in, to calling a people to yourself, to sending Jesus, to letting us represent Jesus to a world that's broken and hurting. God, your redemptive purposes are astounding, and it's even more humbling when we realize that you have called us into this redemptive work, that you use our obediences, you use our faithfulness as your faithfulness. Let us never take that for granted. Let us bring ourselves fully to the things we do, because what we do fully matters. In the strong name of Jesus, amen.